We are in Nehemiah chapter 6 this morning. And in chapter 5, we close that chapter with the truth or the reminder that worshipers of God often are required to minister at their own expense, at their own cost. And it should be no surprise to us that we are called to do that because we serve a God who is a God that's willing to sacrifice his all, to give his all, to show his love and manifest his love and complete his mission. And so as his disciples, it should be no surprise, but that there will be times when a great personal cost is going to be required in order for us to accomplish what God has for us in our lives. Well, in our study of the book of Nehemiah, really in Ezra as well, there's a pattern that I've, I've brought attention to that emerges that's very similar to what we experience in our lives, and that is... We make progress in this Christian pilgrimage. And then a lot of times in the midst of this stride or progress, we are hit or slapped or smacked with opposition from the enemy. And it seems like we cannot escape it. And that's the same thing that we look at. So in Israel's making progress and then there's this opposition from the enemy in our lives. We make progress. And then it's it's the enemy fights it tooth and nail. Well, that's what today's text is about. And I've actually entitled it combating the schemes of the enemy. And uh, I, I really look forward to studying God's word with you this morning and just kind of immersing ourselves into the timeless treasures of God's word. And and I know that God uses it to equip each of us to make this journey of faith as um, as I grow in the Lord, I become more and more aware of the importance of the body of Christ and trusting God to use my brothers and sisters in Christ in my life and and in each other's lives. So I appreciate your presence here this morning and your desire to sit under God's word. And I do want to say that as I close this message <clears throat> that we're going to have a time of prayer. So just kind of forewarn you. So you can anticipate that we're going to have a time of prayer pertaining to the schemes of the enemy. And uh, I have a little idea of what that's going to look like. I can't say I know everything that that will transpire, but I, I have a picture in my mind of something I feel like we need to do as a body of Christ this morning. Um, so I will lead you in that. But I just wanted to forewarn you <clears throat> to anticipate that. Well, the enemy, as you know, is always closely involved with this pilgrimage that we're on, this journey of faith. I, I wish we could do it without the enemy. And it's, it's bad enough that we have our own sinful desires to have to fight off and to say no to. But on top of that, Scripture informs us, and it is our reality, that there is a spiritual warfare that goes on. There's, a, there's this darkness that wants to overtake us, and we have to deal with that. In our walk with God. And it's always close. Uh, Jesus gave us the parable of the wheat and the tares. And in this teaching that Jesus gave us is the idea that they're, they're growing together. You have the children of God and the children of the enemy that are growing together and uh, and they're kind of the tares are interrupting the wheat and they're keeping them from growing as fruitful as, as they could. 
And one of the, the questions asked during this parable was, well, should we go down there and remove the tares so that the wheat can grow more fruitfully? And Jesus said, no, they need to grow together. And at the final day, the final harvest and separation will be made. And there's a lot of truth or a lot of teachings that could be drawn from that. But one thing that we draw from that parable is that the wheat and tares grow together. And the idea is that the presence of evil is with us in this day and age. It's, it's with us in our personal lives. It's with us in our corporal lives. And so this idea of fighting off the, the uh, darkness and the schemes of the devil is something that's very real and evident to us. However, it's not beyond our reach. It's not beyond our grasp to be able to experience victory and overcome these to successfully combat the schemes of the enemy. And that's what we find in Nehemiah. Nehemiah faced, we're going to look at three particular battles that he fought right here in just part of chapter six. That he was able to, he, he had a method, he had a, 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 an approach to fight these off so that he could stay the course in his journey of faith. The first we see is diversion versus focus in the first four verses of chapter six. Now, when Samballot and Tobiah, and you guys have read their names before, Pete and repeat, nothing but trouble all the time. Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it. Although up to that time, I had not set up the doors and the gates. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at Hakafarim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. Nehemiah calls these guys enemies. And we know what enemies are. It means that, that there's hostility between them. Uh, when there's an enemy around, there's tension in the air, there's tension in the room, there's tension in our heart because we know that that person is not at all for us. And the reason they're an enemy is because they look for opportunities to take us down, to make less of us, to bring us harm. The scheme here is that these guys are wanting to make it appear that what they really want is to make peace. We want to make peace. Look, Nehemiah, things don't have to be this way. We all know how disturbing it is to our hearts and souls to have to deal with each other's enemies. Let's just have a little powwow and work this out. Let's be friends. And you know, it sounds like a good idea. And by all means, Scripture teaches us to seek peace at all costs whenever possible. And Jeff Liverman reminded us in a message a few weeks ago about uh, being a peacemaker and also introducing the idea of reconciliation. And this is something that is our Christian duty is to do the hard work of making peace when it's possible and reconciliation. But peace is not always possible. 
The idea, of course, forgiveness is forgiveness takes one. I can forgive you whether you forgive me or not. But reconciliation takes two people because you're bringing a relationship back together. And if both people aren't willing to repent and to see life as God sees it and to see their hearts as God sees it, then you can't have reconciliation. Somebody's remaining outside of that or the enemy. And that's what we find in this in this situation. And Nehemiah is saying no to this offer. Because not everyone that presents themselves as, hey, I want to be your friend, always has our best interest in mind. So there are limits to peacemaking. We can't cut a deal with the enemy. We know that <clears throat> Jesus didn't come to make to cut a peace deal with the enemy. He went to the cross to make war with the enemy to defeat the enemy because he stands in the way of God's plan of redemption and forgiveness for all mankind. So he did not parlay with the enemy. Nehemiah's not going to parlay with the enemy. And they're enemies because maybe on the outside they, they have an appearance of wanting to do things right or maybe even worshiping the God of the Jews. But underneath they, they really want nothing to do with God. I mean, we, we know the history of Israel. They want nothing to do with the true God, not, not with pure motives anyway. And so Nehemiah knows this. He informs them or reveals that their intentions are not to make peace. Their intentions are only to stop the work of the Lord. Their intentions are only to harm Nehemiah to cease this great progress that are being made for God and his people. And there's something here that I think we, we want to keep in mind as children of God. And that is we just have to know. We, we always have to be mindful or keep in the back of our minds that the enemy wants to decommission us. The enemy wants to decommission us from the work that God has placed us in. I think the enemy is portrayed in Scripture as the accuser of the brother. He wants to take away anything that we would do. God, so in, in essence, we, if we would stand before him, like Evan over here, who was being introduced to the military life, what the enemy would want to do is to take the stripes off the sleeves. He wants to decommission us out of the work that God has us doing for him. Now, fortunately, Nehemiah knows this, and he knows that to work with the enemy in the end is to get worked over. When we won't try to make peace with the enemy, any kind of concessions, then it's never a good ending for the saints. We usually always actually get worked over because you just can't make peace with the things that are opposing to God. It just does not end well. This is why I think Jesus gives the New Testament saints the, the great advice on what do you do with the enemy well, he says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. It's, it's a rebuking. He doesn't say, look, you got to out argue him. No, you hang in there and you outsmart him. You show him where he's wrong. He doesn't he doesn't play those games. He says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. We we invoke the power and the authority of God into these situations. So that he will flee. So what exactly is the scheme of the enemy here? It's what I would call diversion. It's, it's creating a diversion 
in an attempt to stop the spiritual progress that's being made in this situation or in this season of life, whether it's individually or corporately. See, because when God commissions us, when God calls us through Scripture, we read about a responsibility, we read about a calling, or He speaks it from spirit to spirit, He guides us, He leads us in His creative ways, whatever it is in our inner man. When we're commissioned by God, we sense that we have a responsibility. It turns into a conviction. I have a responsibility to obey the Lord in this area. God's called me to do this. It's what when our heart says, this is what I need to be about. And it needs to be a priority in my life. And when we come to those decisions before our God, Satan is often right there. Aware and wants to divert us from the very thing that God is leading us in. Around the area of the Enlightenment, um, there was a French philosopher. I don't know that I'm pronouncing his name right or his book, but Blaise Pascal, I think, is how you pronounce it. And he wrote the book Pensies, and I've uh, I've thumbed through it. It's a tough read. This guy was a little smarter than I was, and, and smarter than I am. But he was a French philosopher. He was a brilliant mathematician, but he was a diehard Christian, and he argued very, very effectively for the faith. And he wrote in this book um, about the diversions of the enemy. And he says, yes, there are times when the enemy wants to divert you from God's work by tempting you with these really big sins. That just will wipe you out for a good long time, if not forever, as far as ministry or the work of the Lord goes. And these would be, you know, the, the sins that we often see Christian leaders fail in, the sins of greed or immorality or something like that. And it's just a terrible thing. And we hear the news and we, we're grieved in heart and it just really diverts them off the work of the Lord. But he says more common are the subtle diversions that the enemy brings into our lives. The things that aren't so big and grand. The, the little ways to divert us, the things that are that are that are not so bad might even be good, but are become a priority or become a focus at the wrong time. Now, these enemies are trying their best to get Nehemiah off the wall. That's what's going on here. And sometimes the enemy will bring diversions into our life. Now, this is something that they brought to Nehemiah. Let's make peace. He has to figure out what's he going to do with this. Is this a diversion or is this from God? Of course, he sees it as a diversion. But making peace isn't such a terrible sin, is it? Or putting effort into that. So at any given moment, Satan is trying to pull us away from the work that God intends for us to do. I'll tell on myself here. <clears throat> when I used to lead worship, you know, I had to learn songs and keep in practice and so forth. And, and uh, sermon preparation for me is bittersweet. And that is, I love, like I hardly, I don't know that I ever come away disappointed from God's word when I really take the time to just immerse myself in it. There's. There's just treasures in there. I love to study God's word, but it's work and to, and to organize it. I like to just keep it in and it, for it to feel good in my head and my heart. But then you got to organize it into points and material and you got to think about application. You got to think about other people. And so it's bittersweet. I love it, but it's hard work. And, and so there are times when I 
don't want to do it. But I'm not so crooked that I just say, God, I'm not doing it. And I'm just going to go over here and, and do something I'm not supposed to do that's really blatant. So what I do is I avoid it in the little kind of ways, the subtle ways. What I used to do when I led worship was I'd get started on my sermon prep. I'd be into it a couple hours and I'd be like, oh, man, I don't want to sit here anymore and so forth. And so then I come up with this brilliant idea, play the guitar. After all, you're the worship leader and you need to brush up on these songs and it can't hurt. You, you, could, you need a little improvement in this area. So what I would do is I would use the good thing of playing a guitar at the wrong time. It was a procrastination. It was an avoidance. When I knew that at this time, during my week, and I look at my schedule, this was sermon time period. That's my priority. So when my family hears me singing or playing guitar, certainly there's no, it's, it's a glorious time of worship going on in that bedroom. And I was able to worship the Lord, actually, during those times. But... I was not doing the work that God called me to do at that time. And therefore, I suffered for it. it took, I broke my concentration. It took longer. It's never good. That's just an example. Have you ever noticed that when it comes down to just really getting things done, the nuts and bolts, all these ideas coming in your head of other things you can be doing, that you've been avoiding the rest of the week? So now I don't really... I don't really play the guitar hardly ever. And if I do, it's this. It's almost always because I'm avoiding something. But now it's more like, hmm, now would be a good time to answer this email I haven't answered all week. Or something like that. I mean, so it's, it's filling, it's doing good things. But what is that? It's a diversion. I know it's a diversion in my heart. And it, it's, it's getting me off the wall. I'm not doing what God is requiring me of that time. And there's God, if you're, when you have responsibility, you've got to put it on the calendar sometime during the week so that you can accomplish it. Nehemiah is close to completion. The only thing left is setting the gates and the, and the whole. It's, this is a very important strategic, strategic time in redemptive history. And here are his enemies saying, hey, let's do lunch. Let's kiss and make up. This, this isn't a way to live life. So we think about this and ask ourselves, you know, what's God commissioning us to? What's he calling us to? What are the things in our hearts that we know we need to do before the Lord? He's asking these things of us. And what are the diversions that the enemy might have? Are there times where we neglect our marriages in favor of spending more time with the kids? Or are there times when we spend more time with the kids in favor of doing the work of the ministry? There's these responsibilities that we have that we're called to. And required to keep the balance and not allow the enemy to come in and divert us from doing the work that he wants us to do. And if we have scheduled time or a given time or season of time, and we know what that is, to keep ourselves up on the wall. 
Because when we neglect either one of these areas, whether it's, I'll talk a little bit about this, whether it's our walk with God, whether it's our marriages, whether it's relationships between brothers and sisters and the family, whatever it is. When we neglect one for another, then it suffers. The only reason the enemy wants to sit down and reason with us is to get into our heads. Now, the enemy has been the enemy is really, really good at being evil. He's better than we are at being evil. And he just wants an, he just wants us to open the door a little bit because he knows that if he can get in there, if he can be a part of the dialogue in our head, he just very well may get somewhere if we let him in that far. You know, we, we keep this running dialogue in our heads. I know you do. I'm not alone in this. We talk to ourselves and we talk to God. But we have this dialogue. He wants an opportunity to, to, to uh, put his two cents in there. Because he's very influential in that way. And he can divert us. So he wants to get into our heads so that he can help us with our planning and help us with our decisions. But really, it's just an ambush. It's a total ambush. There's never anything good that comes out of it. So what did Nehemiah do to combat this diversion? Well, it's called resolve or focus. I mean, it's, it's nothing profound. So how do you fight it when the enemy's coming at you with this diversion and that? Focus. Or was it the karate kid? Focus. Got to focus. It's a resolve here. He says, Nehemiah, in verse 3, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? He doesn't make a big fuss and say, I know what's behind this and, and go into a, uh, a discourse. He remains calm, cool, and collect, which is Nehemiah's habit. He's not an impulsive, impulsive person. He doesn't blow his top. He just says, I can't. I'm busy doing what God has commissioned me to do right now. This is important. It's the priority. I'm giving all my mental, physical, spiritual energy into this. And I cannot come down to entertain that right now. And it's not like they didn't put on the pressure. Scripture says four times they, they sent messengers. Come on, Nehemiah. Let's just, just think about this. Let's work this out. I mean, that's pushy. And sometimes people are pushy because they can, they want to uh, cause you to feel guilty for saying no. Sometimes it's just really hard to say no the first time. But imagine having to say it four times to the same thing. I'm, I'm sure you've been confronted with that before. Somebody really wants their way and they're not going to take no for an answer. And they keep coming at you and it just gets more and more awkward for you. And you feel really impolite in saying no. It's a guilt trip. So another way of, of saying this is that we can bat the enemy's diversions by focusing and learning what might be called the Christian discipline of saying no. There's a Christian discipline of saying no. There has to be. There has to be times where we say no to things. Either no, that's evil, it's absolutely wrong and I can't do it. Or no, it's not time for me to do this. I'm busy serving the Lord in this way. Maybe later I can join you for, for that, but not right now. That's how we stay on the track. But in order to stay on the track, we have to know our track, right? We've got to know what the track is. We have to know what God has commissioned us to. 
And once we know what God has placed in our heart or revealed to us in, in his word primarily, then we can we can uh, feel the things, all the diversions that come at us and say, uh, yes, yes, yes. Oh, no, that's not what God has for me right now. We're not being mean by saying no. We're not being unloving or rude or arrogant as if oh, I'm too important for that kind of stuff. It's it's a matter of priority. That's how kingdom work is done. It's that faithful service where it is a focus and a priority and you just keep at it and you keep at it and keep at it. That's how kingdom progress is often made. I think about this in my own life. What are my priorities? How do I know what to say yes and no to? Well, sometimes it's really hard. But I know this. First, I'm a disciple. And so my greatest priority is my walk with God. And then I'm a I'm a husband. And so my other priority is to to care for my wife. And then I'm a father as well by my own volition. So my other uh, priority is to care for my children. And I'm a pastor. And so by vocation, my other priority is to care for the church. And if, if I'm not doing any one of those things, if I'm neglecting any one of those things for the other, which is easy to do, then something's suffering. It, that's just the way it works. And it's my responsibility, as difficult it is, and, and you know it as well. I, I have to juggle this, these priorities. I have to keep this certain plate spinning. And I have to trust that God is giving me the ability to do that as I walk in Obedience, And it's very difficult sometimes, and I'm sure you've experienced it as well, saying no to good things. I mean, sometimes I have to say no to fun things. I have to I have to say no to, to potential friendships because I don't have time or I have to say no to invitations or visitations. Sometimes I have to say no to ministry. Sometimes I have to say no to the, to the house, the family in favor of a walk, my walk with God. There are times and it's very difficult and it's hard. But by staying focused is the way that I can live out these convictions that God has placed in my heart. And it doesn't take a genius, of course, to look at a person's life to see how well they're doing with the priorities that God has placed in. You know, if our marriages are falling apart, what's the message? It's being neglected. If our kids are running wild, what's the what's the message? I'm I'm neglecting them. If I'm a Christian and yet I'm not involved in ministry at all, there's neglect there. If I'm not holding down a job there's to provide for my family, there's something's not right there. And it, it means to refocusing on God afresh and looking at the track that he has set before us. And of course, as we focus on our priorities, then we accomplish what the Lord has for us to accomplish. So we want to stay focused. We, we, we just want to expose our hearts to God's word this morning and say, God, what, where's my track? And remind me if I've lost sight of it. What are the important things in my life? Because there's so many diversions these days. And help me to walk it. Help me to see it and help me to stay focused on this great work. Help me to stay on the wall. The second is disgrace versus truth, verses five through nine. 
the second scheme. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And in it was written. It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. And that's why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from their work and it will not be done. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. What's another scheme or the second scheme in this text is to discredit a person's character or to disgrace them, to disgrace or dishonor the reputation of the saints of God. And he sends an open letter. And in that day, most letters were sent, as you know, and sealed often with a wax ring. Nobody got to read them. They were sealed and they were only intended for one eye, set of eyes only. But an open letter basically is uh, like posting something on the Internet. It's going public so that everybody can read it. There's no intention for it to remain secret. It was for everybody to read. So this letter is sent so that everybody can hear of this reporting that's taking place. And it's fair game now. And what does it state? In essence, he's saying to Nehemiah, the public is full aware of what you're really doing here. This rebellion that you're working up and your desire to be king There are reports and they have been substantiated and such and such says it as well that you are in rebellion to the king Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. And it's only my right and duty to let him know about this and to warn you of the dangerous waters that you're treading into. And of course, behind that is to instill fear. Nehemiah sees right through it. It's another scheme. And you'll notice that all these schemes from the enemy have something to do with instilling fear. These are the reports. So the plan is simple. Take out the quarterback. He's the one. He's the man with the vision. He's got the energy. He's the most driven. He's holding things together. He's, he's calling the shots. Take out the quarterback. And maybe this progress will slow take him out of the work so it he didn't fall for the invitations of false peace so now let's just go after his character let's dishonor him let's twist his motives and make really what he's doing is a great work for god but let's make it look um like it's malicious and evil and it's bringing harm it's a distraction One of the worst things, one of the hardest things to take, especially as a believer, is when you're really immersing yourself and you're working hard for God. And somebody comes along and misjudges your motives as if you're doing it for wrong and, and, and for evil. That is a hard, hard thing to have to live through. And that's what's taken place. I mean, Nehemiah has given his all to this mission, to this job only. And he just sacrificed himself for the good of the people. And here comes the enemy, the evil one, misjudging his motives so that he will be distracted. It's the fifth attempt, which 
reminds us Satan is persistent. Satan is persistent. We always have to be on our guard. We always have to be ready. Well, it's your typical smear campaign. We see it, especially in our elections and politicians, anybody running for office or anybody who wants to look better than another person. It's a smear campaign. And and uh, you try to point out all the bad things. And if you've got to twist the truth to make that person look worse than he really is, so be it. Happens in the church sometimes, too. We get our feelings hurt, and rather than dealing with it biblically and wrestling with it, we just want to throw stuff at the other person and make them look bad. And unfortunately, because of the disease of our heart, we want to believe what we want to believe, and we don't always want to believe truth. And so we just get on board and jump on board with these things just because we want to see a person go down, even though they may not even be guilty. And it's, it's effective, otherwise people wouldn't use it. It does take people down. No matter how tough you are, these kind of false accusations are very, very difficult to bear. I mean, we can't deal with every accusation. How are you going to deal with every accusation? How are you going to answer every email? Especially if you're really in the spotlight for the Lord. You can't, you can't answer Every to everything that happens. And then if you if you remain silent and don't entertain it at all, then people say, oh, they're not saying anything. They must be guilty. But then if you like really come out with this comprehensive argument about your innocence, they think, oh, they must be guilty because they're really trying to prove their innocence. I mean, how do you fight something like that? What do you do with that? Well, these guys say it's reported it's just the, I'm just telling you the facts. We know how that goes. I mean, look what we have witnessed in our culture where people who are supposed to... Well, of course, the news is supposed to be completely objective. You know that, right? I'm just, I'm just reporting this from a completely objective standpoint. There's no agendas. And then, of course, we had um, Brian Williams of NBC who was fired and disciplined for... Reporting the facts. I'm, I'm just reporting to you what really happened. And they actually had some. I had enough sense to check the facts and found out this is not at all what happened. And so even in our own culture, this idea of reporting, if you hear something, it's reported. It doesn't mean it's a fact anymore, unfortunately. So what does Nehemiah do with this false report? How does he combat it? It's gone viral, basically. It's, it's uh, public. Well, he does... About the only thing you can do, he just denies it. And it's okay to deny a false report. It's not true. What, what you're saying is not true. I'm not rebelling. I'm not wishing to be the king. And uh, you're just making it up. It's okay to say it. He, he says it's all in your head. You're, you're basically dreaming this up. Even though they're judging his motives. And so... <clears throat> He's combating this attack against his character with truth. And let me just say that in, in the, at the end of the day, that's really all we have. Because you can't answer everything and you can't make people believe the truth. They might not want to believe the truth. So what then what can we hold on to? What will keep us from sinking down with all the accusations and the false motives? It's just knowing the truth and hanging on to the truth and trusting that truth really matters to God and that you have a friend in this to hold you up. At least there's one person you can count on who appreciates truth. And sometimes 
That just has to be enough. And, and I say this in the midst especially of a youth culture that is absolutely br- brutal when it comes to spreading rumors around people. Youth are committing suicide because they can't get out from under the, the attacks of their peers. And they, they don't see hope in life anymore. It just closes in on them. Sometimes the truth has to be enough to get us through these kind of Accusations. Nehemiah basically says, that's not true. He is secure in God in this area. So he, I guess you could break it down into three ways that he responds. He relies on the truth. He exposes their motives. He throws that in there. By the way, you're just making this up because you don't like us. You're our enemy. Which I think probably people knew. And then lastly, he prays for strength. Here, strengthen my hands, O oh God. It's that arrow prayer that Nehemiah is known for. You know, he's saying, man, this is tough. I'm, I'm feeling a little weak. This is knocking me back. God, I need some strength here. Have you ever felt that way? Ever felt like you can't go on and your tank is empty and God's saying go on and you're like, there's nothing here. What am I going to go on? My, even my fumes are gone. <laughs> that was one of my recent complaints to God. Like, um, God, even my fumes are gone this time. I, I got nothing here. There's no juice. And uh, sometimes you just think, how am I going to get through it? And sometimes I would pray. I'll pray and say, you know, Lord, to Today, matter of fact, not today, but just right now would be a wonderful time for you to come back. I don't really want to have to deal with this. Can't you just come back? Take us on up, you know. I mean, you just get tired and you get weary. These things. Nehemiah just, he knows God's there. He knows God's sovereign. He understands the physical weakness. The flesh is weak. And so he just shoots up this prayer in the midst of these accusations and the attacks. Strengthen my arms. Strengthen my hands. Why? Not just so he can feel good about himself. Because I got work to do for you. It's important work. It's in your plan. And so he stays on the wall yet again, even with the second scheme. He didn't come down. And then we see, you know, now's a good time for God to go easy on him. After these attacks, after all that he has been through. And he prays his prayer, strengthen my hands, O God. Now, we'll see that God answers his prayer in the end. But he doesn't answer it as he might expect. God doesn't go easy on him because if there's ever a time that a bro could use some spiritual encouragement, now would be a good time, right? Wouldn't now be a great time for God to send just another mature Christian to come along, side him, and you know. And Lisa's up here crying. She's trying to. I don't. Anyway, it would be a great time for the Lord to send 
a, a good friend, man, a Christian bro, somebody who's like, I appreciate your work. Somebody to put his arm around Nehemiah. Say, you're doing the right thing. Thank you for that. Come on, let's go. Let's do lunch. Bojangles KFC, it's your choice. <laughs> After that, we'll go see a movie. I'll treat you to the unlimited popcorn refill bucket and drink. And I want you to know, I want you to be encouraged. I, I care about you. I care about the work. And, and I'm praying for you. Man, what a great time for God to bring that encourager into Nehemiah's life. And that's not what happens because what we see now is deception versus discernment in verses 10 through 14. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delaiah, the son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose, he was hired that I should be afraid. There's that fear again. And act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember, here's another arrow prayer. Uh, maybe even imprecatory. Remember Tobiah and Sambalad, oh my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. He goes down to this house of the priest. Now, we don't really know much about this guy. He says he's confined. Maybe he's elderly. Maybe he's handicapped. We don't know. We do know that he is a priest. And he is important. He is important enough of a man of God to cause Nehemiah to come down off the wall to see what he has. And I think Nehemiah is going because this guy, this priest says, I have a word of God for you and and, of course, Nehemiah could really use a word from God right now. So I'm speculating that that's what's going on here. But what when he arrives, he doesn't receive any kind of spiritual encouragement. What he receives is another diversion. What he receives is an attempt by the enemy to to instill fear in him, to grip him by fear so that the work of God will stop. You have to know that fear is one of the enemy's greatest weapons. He will take God's good things and twist them and want to instill fear in us so that we're always anxious and twisted up inside about everything. Always worried about what they think about us or what's going to become of that or the future or the past. And how can I know that this is going to su succeed? He, he is the the. The father of fear, not just the father of lies. Of course, fear is a lie. That's why in Scripture you will read this command countless times. What is God always telling his people? Fear not. He has to tell us that all the time because Satan is saying, you need to be scared about this and you need to worry about that. So the priest tells Nehemiah that there's a secret plot 
the people that are going to come at night when you least expect it, and they're going to kill you. It's a plot. I mean, they're already planning it. You got your house staked out. They know your, your sleeping habits and so forth. Basically, the idea is there's no way in the world. What are you going to do? Stay up all night to protect yourself. You're not going to get another night's sleep. So what you need to do is um, you need to come in the temple and hole up with me. We'll shut the doors. Therefore, it's the only place you can be safe. So come on and protect your life. I mean, there's a lot going on here. And further, it's not just good sound advice. It's thus saith the Lord, Nehemiah, come off the wall and let's go into the temple and and spare yourself. And if you don't, I mean, this is very convincing. If you don't, basically, you're disobeying God. That's the idea behind it. What fool would do that? So rather than spiritual encouragement, he gets spiritual deception. A word from God. Run for your life, Nehemiah. Hole up in the temple. Now, he's been going full force for about two months now. You know he's tired. You know he's weary. You know probably there's a part of him that really wants to stop. And if anybody, again, if anybody could use a break, it would be him. And he's just been attacked with false peace. He's been attacked with diversions and schemes. And then his, his character has been assaulted. His motives have been twisted. And now his life is being threatened. And you would think, maybe this is God's spiritual encouragement. Maybe he's giving me this break. It's time to go in here and take it easy. Get away from my enemies. He could have seen this as a thank you, Lord, moment. For sparing me. But he doesn't. He sees right through it. And he, not, he doesn't see it as an opportunity to be spared. He sees it as an opportunity to sin. He basically says, I can't sin like that. <clears throat> For two reasons. First of all, God has burdened him to build this wall. And that hasn't changed. And when you know that the work is still there, you just have to know in your spirit, I as good as it sounds, I can't do that right now. He's firm in his conviction in order for it to be rebuilt, in order for Israel to make process, progress, in order for people to rebuild their lives of worship. The wall's got to be done. I've already determined it. It's not up for grabs anymore. Sounds good, but that's not from God. And secondly, Nehemiah's not a priest. And if you want to get technical, if you know your Bibles, uh, if you're not a priest, you can't go in the temple and stay in those rooms like that. Only, that's reserved for priests. So really, he would be going against Scripture if he were to do that. So he basically says, uh, no. Again, it's no. It's no to the deception. Live or die, I'm called to do this. It's more dangerous for, for me to abandon my post than it is to live in the temple. Mark Driscoll says, a guy with a tender heart and conscience toward God... At a broken, hard moment of his life, desperately would like to hear from God and get a little bit of encouragement. Let's manipulate his faith in God, his need for God to destroy him by compelling him to sin, by hiring someone to lie to him in the name of God. So that when he breaks the Bible, then we already have the verse out saying, aha, we baited you. And he bit. Now we can mock him and take him down. He doesn't know his Bible. He just broke God's law and he's not the leader you thought he was. Look, he's hiding out. He's looking after his own interest. He doesn't care about you. They can mock him and taunt him. What saved Nehemiah? Spiritual discernment. What else can you call it? Spiritual discernment. 
He saw through this priest for hire. He knew God's word well enough to realize that wasn't an option. And at one time, this priest may have been a, a powerful man of God. I don't know. But at right now, he saw that this is a false prophecy. He was a man hired. And because he knows his Bible and because he is walking with God, you know, this, this constant prayer dialogue that he has, he is able to spiritually discern that this is actually deception. It's not different today. I mean, look at how many opportunities are out there for us to belong false teaching or to believe false teaching. Look at all the men of God or the people of God that are basically prophets for hire, giving us false messages, false gospels and false teaching because it keeps the money coming in. Prosperity gospel. Don't have time to get into it, maybe sometime in the near future, but all the end time stuff is really starting to provoke me. All the end time, everybody knows what's, all of a sudden everybody, we hadn't known it for over 2,000 years exactly, but there are a lot of people out there that know every little single detail of how it's going to come out, and if you give them enough money, they'll tell you their secret. And if you know the end, and let me just say one thing that I'm not going to spend any time on, is look at the end time messages and see what the motivation behind it. And see if it's not most of the time instilling fear. It instills fear and it gets you restless and it makes you feel panicky. I, panicky, I got to do something. Man, I don't know that's from God. Just gee whiz information. So we don't want to believe everything that we hear or everybody that says they claim to be from God. We need spiritual discernment for these things. So he combats the spiritual deception with spiritual discernment. He throws up another arrow prayer, and it's basically an imprecatory prayer. Uh, Once again, God, be reminded of what's going on here because, you know, those guys. And he's trusting God to do justice. Nehemiah, yeah, he's relying on prayer for his life, isn't he? It's not a duty for him. He's got to have it. He's got to know God's there for him. He's got him covered and he's going to work it all out. So, so here's how we, we land the plane this morning. Just want to conclude with this. The enemy doesn't want you to build your wall. Everybody in here has God-given responsibilities. And you know what they are. And they're different for some of us. God doesn't. The enemy doesn't want you to build your wall. And so there are going to be lots of opportunities and schemes and temptations to come down from this work of God. To knock you off your calling and your God-given responsibilities. Being under attack. The enemy wants you to come down. And secondly, in order to stay up there, it's going to require resolve and focus. It's going to require absolutely depending on God's truth and not what things may appear and not what people might say. And it does depend upon spiritual discernment, and that is knowing God's word and walking with God. The enemy does not want us to stay on this wall. However, if we are able to do this, 
then great kingdom progress can be had. So New Covenant Fellowship, you know your part. Your elders, your deacons, your missionaries, your teachers, your administrators, your healers, your prophets, your servants, your husbands, your wives, your parents, your kids, your employers, your employees. You know your gifts, you know your priorities, you know God's word, you know God's call on your life. Let's not come down from our wall. Let's not come down from the work that God is accomplishing in our midst. May God strengthen our weary hands and may we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith. May God bless the preaching of his word. And I'm going to do something different right now. And again, I don't have all the details. All I, I and I know it's we're always racing the clock. Start late, finish late. But what we um. What I, here's when I was preparing this message and then I've been wrestling with this in my spirit this morning. And here's the picture I have. I don't even know if it's going to work dynamically, statistically. That's neither of those words, the two words I'm looking for. Uh, what's the word that um, logistically? Thank you. OK, when, when I was thinking about this message, I pictured New Covenant Fellowship making a circle. Holding hands like Pastor Kirk used to make us do all the time. I don't make you do that. And if you're really against it, then you can stand there like this. But I pictured us holding hands. And I pictured our youth in the middle of the church. So I don't know if we can all fit around here. I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe we have to do two by two. But I'd like for us to just form a circle and the youth to come in the center. Because if anybody, if you, if you're an adult and you feel like you're attacked by the schemes of the enemy... Magnify that to our youth. If you think it's hard when you're already grown up and mature, now you know how vulnerable youth are and you know the enemy wants to wipe out the seeds there and to get them. And it's hard to take a stand as a Christian, as a youth. I'm going to ask if the youth would be so willing to get in the middle, whether you sit, whether you stand. Again, the logistics thing I don't have figured out. But I just want us as adults uh, to get around, hold hands. I'm just going to ask for three or four of us to pray. That God would strengthen their hands and, of course, to, as God leads, to pray uh, against the schemes of the enemy. That, that's, as, that's all I have right now. That's all I know about what I feel like God is calling us to do. So there's nothing to it but to do it, right?